Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, folks. Charlie Bazzina here. Join me for my Hunting for Killer show on March 2 at Roomba's Function Centre in Gisborne, just 40 minutes north of Melbourne. I'll be taking you on a unique and fascinating journey outlining my investigations from discovery of a body to some surprising conclusions. This presentation is not to be missed. Tickets available at trybooking.com and the ticket price includes a pasta meal and a complimentary glass of wine. Limited seats are available. Hope to see you there. Thanks for listening and being part of my podcast. I hope 2024 is kind to you. In my 27 years as a Victorian policewoman, I investigated everything from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. Policing taught me a lot about human nature, which I explore in my podcasts, with a mixture of interesting and thought-provoking guests discussing the human side and impact of crime on all those involved, including the investigators. And I'd love for you to give me a review if you can. They're just a great help to me. I give my guests the opportunity to tell their story in their own words and how they remember an incident. It may not be how others remember it, which I ask you to please keep in mind. My podcasts are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. If you find yourself affected by my subject matter, contact Lifeline or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. Thank you. When we talk about whether incarceration works for youth in terms of actually making a difference, I think it's not really having a function. In fact, I'd say there's a lot of youth out there that quite like the concept of prison. Today's guest contacted me a while ago, not because he particularly wanted to, but he was being hounded by his family because they thought he had a story worth telling. Well, I've got to thank his family so very much for hounding and nagging him because when they said he had a story to tell, they weren't kidding. I got chatting to Giles and an hour later, I realised that I'd completely forgotten my hair appointment. But had I not had to rush off, I think I'd still be talking to him. I know I keep saying this, but doing this podcast is a privilege in so many ways, but particularly when somebody like Giles comes along. It allows the listener to be part of a conversation that I have with somebody about their life, which the community would never get the opportunity to listen to. Otherwise, Every one of us has a story in us, but Giles takes that to another level. Giles was a prison officer with Corrections Victoria for 12 years. For six of those years, he worked in the operations team for Corrections Victoria Intelligence Unit. His role was to investigate prison offences, drug trafficking into prisons, disrupt prison gang activity, investigate staff misconduct, and to provide intelligence information to law enforcement agencies. Giles discovered a love of investigating and he's recently landed a great role as an investigator for another government organisation. But it's his role with Corrections Victoria that we're going to talk about today. His inside knowledge of many prisoners we've all heard about through the media, it's fascinating, with his role as case manager requiring him to talk and interact with them and support them in a way. He gives us an insight into their personalities and what it was like dealing with some of Australia's most dangerous criminals. 
how's that for an intro for a person that um, his family said he's got a story to tell? Uh, welcome to NFI, Giles. Thanks for having me, Narelle. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. I hope we uh, we could talk for hours, as was proof the other day when I was late for my appointment. Yeah, that's <laughs> but, right. Um, yeah, no, but look, thank you very much. Um, let's get stuck into it. Uh, you went to uni and did a social science degree. Um, can you tell us about where your interest in that field began, why you had such an interest in social science? Oh, look, for me personally, I've always been fascinated by human psychology. And so um, one, as a, as a uh, teenager growing up, I used to watch a lot of true crime documentaries and I was more fascinated by, I suppose, uh, the forensic aspect of it. So what compelled um, people to kill, um, why they choose particular victims. Um, mm. And so I decided to... Uh, focus my career on becoming a, a counsellor or a psychologist. So I chose uh, a social science degree and um, that's what led me to ultimately working in the prison system because I, I got to have those discussions with offenders about why they've committed offences and um, get more insight into uh, what drives them. Did you find that the prisoners were quite open to talking about that or was it hard to get them to open up? Look, it really depends. Some prisoners, are, um, you know, once you start speaking to them, they will just open up. I remember when I was doing a, a university placement at Fulham, I spoke to a prisoner for about an hour and a half and I distinctly remember it because he was very open and honest with me. I got to ask any question I wanted um, but there, on the other hand, there are offenders that don't engage whatsoever. And, um, you know, some of the serial killers that uh, have um, I've dealt with over the years, they're not very engaging. Um, they're not interested in discussion. And so, you know, ultimately you can't get much from them. Mm. Uh, in saying that, is there a serial killer that uh, sticks in your mind as to somebody who was very open to talking to you? Probably the one that, that spoke the most uh, was a guy called Greg Brazel. Um, he killed a few people back in the 80s and um, he he is probably, when you look at, you know, the media portrayal of serial killers, quite often they portray like a pantomime character like um, Silence of the Lambs. But in all reality, serial killers are pretty plain and boring. Um, they're not very intelligent. They don't have a lot of social skills but uh, Greg Brazel is probably, um, if you could equate someone to the Science of the Lambs character, very similar in that nature, very manipulative, um, is a person that will uh, make observations about you and effectively try and come up with a strategy of um, manipulating you. So he would talk at length, but he always had an agenda with uh, the way that he talked with you. Yeah, funny you say that. I remember a, uh, a, uh, a serial rapist by the name of Peter Vatos, and I remember speaking to him uh, one time. Uh, he was a suspect for an offence that uh, he was uh, eliminated from, but uh, I always remember how I don't know about manipulative he was, but he was actually uh, quite charismatic and I can always remember thinking to myself, God, no wonder this man could get into anyone's house. He just had the gift of the gab and he was and smooth is the wrong word. Um, but gee, he was I suppose that's manipulative, isn't it? When you actually start to think this well, I'd never thought he was a nice person, but I could talk to him forever because I just found him so fascinating and open. Yeah. I find, generally speaking, with sex offenders, I mean, you've got lots of different types of sex offenders, but, um, you know, some of these sex offenders have had very prominent careers, like have been senior members of the church or have been CEOs of companies. At one point mm. we had a magistrate in custody for child abuse material. So they are, in a lot of instances, highly intelligent and people that have been successful 
uh, in life and that can use that success and the skills that they've developed over the years to manipulate victims as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I understand why you wanted to uh, why you were interested in the psyche behind offenders because uh, I am too uh, and I never did a uni degree and I probably, I, I know I would have loved it, but just exactly like you said, just about what is it that makes a person an offender, first of all, or what makes them think I want to, and I'm thinking sex offences because that's my main um that's what I did mostly, yep. um, investigate sex offences. But what I used to think, what would make them uh, think, what is it about a rape that they liked? Um, what was it that attracted them to this particular victim on this particular day? You know, did they get up in the morning and think, I'm going to rape somebody today? Or, you know, all that the psyche behind their offending. It's just fascinating, isn't it? I could talk forever about that. (laughs) Yeah, same here. Yeah, yeah. So there's obviously positives and negatives uh, with working in a prison environment. Uh, What did you enjoy about working with prisoners? Uh, Look, coming back to the human psychology component of it, it was a great opportunity to, to talk to people and because I'm interested in their stories, I found that uh, the job was quite fulfilling initially when I started working there because I got to have those discussions, especially Mm. coming from a university degree where we had certain case studies that we would focus on. It was always very theory-based, but this was gave me an opportunity to implement some of that more practically um, and actually speak to some of the people that I read about and, um, you know, for me personally, that's what was the most rewarding part of my job. Um, interestingly enough, in terms of a, a job, I had a few preconceived ideas about what a prison officer does. And initially I thought I'll do this for 12 months or two years to get some experience and then probably move on to uh, either policing or another area of the criminal justice system. Um, but when I started working there, I was surprised how diverse the role of a prison officer is. When you think about prison, it's a miniature society. So Mm. there are different areas of the prison that require, you know, different skill sets. So when I was a casual prison officer, I worked in industries. Uh, I worked in as a recreation officer. So I was doing sporting activities with the offenders. Um, I got to work in Intel later in my career. So there's lots of different uh, doors there. And so, um, for me personally, I found that quite rewarding that when I got tired of something, I could uh, move to something else. Hmm. You just said then that uh, when you were at uni, you did case studies and it was all uh, theoretical. Yeah. Is there? Did you do a case study on something? Uh, was there a particular case study you did that you remember was, you know, you learned a lot? Look, we so the university I went to, it was a private uni called Navitas. I don't know what it's called now. It, it always changes its name every couple of years. But it employed people from the criminal justice system to um, do the, um, the subjects. So they all had practical experience. So they used um, examples from their own life. So my, I remember my lecturer, Judy Wright, she was uh, part of the adult parole board. And she was also um, a, a prison officer at Pentridge. So the examples that she used to give were real life scenarios. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, she talked about, she talked quite extensively about some of the uh, underworld figures that she dealt with and used them as an example. Probably the um, one she spoke about the most with Keith Four. Um, and, you know, later in, in my career, of course, I've. Um, got to actually meet and speak to Keith Fall. Um, so that was, in a sense, interesting, like uh, having heard these things and then actually going and working in that live environment with those people. Mm. Uh, can you tell us a bit uh, about Keith Fall, what you remember about him or what you learnt about him? Uh, look, not, not a heck of a lot. He's one of those people that doesn't give you much Um I believe, you know, he was a hitman in the 90s. I don't know a heck of a lot about his uh, offending, but um, 
he was one of the few that wouldn't engage with, especially newer staff. When I, I started, um, he would really only speak to more experienced staff. Uh, back in the in the eighties, apparently he was uh, running a, a prison gang in B Division, and he was quite uh, notorious. But by the time I dealt with him, he's a, you know an old man, um, and he wasn't involved in those activities anymore. So um, he was. I suppose a great disappointment. I was expecting to have a good discussion with him, but I didn't get much from him at all. But he he kind of yeah. came from the era. His brother, I think had, his brother was Noel uh, Four, and he was also like an underworld figure. He was the same. You know, you got very lit, little from them. They were more from the that old school mentality of of not talking to prison officers. Um, mm. So yeah, I found him quite difficult to talk to, but. There were others that I found quite receptive um, and and open uh, to talk to, um, and yeah, I, I was surprised by that. Um, uh, probably the one that stands out the most is um, Matthew Wales. Matthew Wales killed his, um, I think it was his mother and his stepfather, um, and he was the haircutting billet, and so. I was doing a little stint as the recreation officer, so I managed him as a billet and I spoke to him at length about his offending. I talked at length to, about his family. Um, we kind of, it was kind of a bit spooky because we had a similar upbringing. We both went to private schools in the inner east of of Melbourne. We knew, we didn't know of each other, but we knew of, um, you know, people who lived in that area. Um, so, there was a lot to talk about and I found that quite fascinating. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but I was intimately involved in that investigation from the very uh, start when um, uh, he was or when the parents were uh, reported missing. And I can always remember the first time I ever met Matthew, uh, oh, he was he was a very different cat, uh, but he... Uh, I can understand that he would be mm, interesting to speak to is probably the wrong word, <laughs> but fascinating to speak to because just the fall from grace he had, well, from the outside, he looked like he had everything, money, you know, a successful business, um, a lovely wife, a little baby, a lovely house. Yeah. But, but underneath it all, uh, this is my experience as an investigator. Yours might be different, but underneath it all, he was just um, uh, uh, jealous. I think of the. Um, I think he used to think that his parents and his um, and his family were using money, and there was lots of it, um, as a bargaining tool with him. And I, he was the youngest of five, I think. And you know, from the very minute we got that job. His family said it'll be Matthew. Like, mm. just there was never any question uh, that it was anybody else. But of course, we kept an open mind. But uh, yeah, they they put the finger on him the day that they reported their parents missing. Amazing. Yeah, and the, the thing that really struck me about Matthew is that he comes across as quite intelligent. But you know, when I've read about um, his his offence, that you know, there were a few things that. He did that. I believe he. You could correct me if I'm wrong here, but did he leave um, his victims out on the front yard overnight or something along those lines, and then hide a, a trailer in his own name? Yeah, he wasn't out. too bright. Like, yeah, so he wasn't. Like, it really kind of highlighted that this was a crime of more of passion rather than a crime that he's really thought about and think, how can I get away with this type thing. Oh, yeah, and you're right, everything was in his name. So there was a trail of um, evidence uh, at virtually right up to where he buried them up in uh, the, the hills. Um, yes, he, he went and got shovels from Bunnings, you know, all all on his uh, on his credit card. So, you know, as I said, it was just a trail of evidence up to where uh, his parents were buried. But uh, no, he he wasn't too bright, but he did. Yes, he left them uh, in a trailer um, 
for I think one one night, just not knowing. He didn't really think ahead of just I want to uh, murder them, and he, yeah, he didn't think any further than that. It just yes, not not the brightest um, uh, spark. <laughs> yeah. Um. So did. It used to get to you, like spending your days in a prison, uh, like because the reason I say that is when I'd visit a prison in my policing days, it really upset me. It distressed me seeing these, and they were generally men, um, caged up, sort of like animals. And I know people will say that's where they deserve to be, and and you know some of them probably do, but um, I know people are in there for a reason, but. To be in a prison day in and day out, I'm just wondering how you dealt with that. Look, it definitely could get pretty monotonous um, and it it does wear on you over a period of time and I think it depends on where you work. So um, high security, it's, you know, pretty much a concrete jungle but then you've got lower security facilities that are out in regional locations where you're working on um, farms and there's thousands of acres where the prisoners can go out and work. Um, so I think every prison officer's experience is, is different and I was fortunate enough to visit all the prisons in, in Victoria in different capacities. Um, but, yeah, for me personally, the monotony of, of prison life did get to me. Um, but having said that, you know, I never felt uh, sorry for the offenders there, especially a place like Barwon where I started my career. You, you're typically dealing with... Um, people who have committed offences um, such as murder, uh, serial rapists, people really at the, the higher end. So for me there was no, you know, lost sleep that some of these people were there. Um, in fact, I, I would say that um, over the years we've probably done a lot to improve the conditions of prisons and I thought um, my personal opinion is we treat them quite humanely um, and, you know, although it is a bit of a concrete jungle, uh, there's still a lot of focus on, you know, trying to engage with the inmates and they have opportunities to work out and go to work. And uh, it's it's a, it's changed a lot since uh, the Pentridge days. You know, I have walked through Pentridge um, and old Geelong Jail and old Melbourne Jail and you look at those facilities and um, they're fascinating. They, they look like old castles, but... Um, they're completely different um, in today's today's world now. We have, you know, technology and we've got a bit more mindfulness about the effect of institutionalisation on offenders as well. Mm. Yeah, you know, I can't believe that people go to to uh, Pentridge and they can stay there overnight, <laughs> you know, and, and, and do a tour. Yeah. Uh, it would be almost the last place on earth I would want to go, <laughs> but I understand people, uh, their fascination with it, but to actually see it a running prison, as and I did, uh, at Pentridge, oh, you're right, we have we have come a long way because that really was a concrete jungle, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm. What's the camaraderie like between prison officers? Look, it, it, it can be great. Um, you, you'll meet people that you become lifelong friends with. Um, when you experience, I suppose, hardship and, um, you know, the challenging nature of work, there, there is a a bond that you build with your colleagues and they're probably the first people you go to when you're in uh, trouble and, uh, you know, quite often they're the only ones that relate to what you do. Um, But it's also a little bit of a double-edged sword because there was social cliques within the prison officer group um, that would uh, create a very distasteful culture, Uh, especially as a, a new prison officer coming in I'd say those first two years were were pretty awful. Um, You know, there were a lot of staff that wouldn't engage with you, would see you as more of a hindrance um, than than assistance. Um, You know, typically prison officers that have been in the job 30, 40 years. Um, And interestingly enough, when you got them away from the, you know, the the prison officer group and and had one-on-one discussion, you hear that they too had a miserable time when they first started working in the 
at Pentridge or Old Geelong Jail, and they were treated like crap. But you know, thirty years later, they're still treating people like crap. Mm. So um, that I didn't enjoy, um, and I, I think that's always kind of lived with me. You know, some of the things that that used to happen between staff, but you know, generally speaking, I think prison officers are a good bunch of people, and. You know, I very rarely saw prison officers that were there for the wrong reasons. I think most people uh, have a, a drawn to the job like I am, like uh, have an interest in human behaviour, want to do something where you're working with people and, you know, trying to, you know, uh, get the best out of people. So, mm. yeah, mixed mixed feelings about the camaraderie between staff, but I'd say it's generally positive. I think you'd have to say that, that would be probably the same in most workplaces. Like, and I know as police, you know, we had old dinosaurs that, pardon me, they used to say, oh, the job's effed, um, you know, and had a real negative outlook. But then the really good ones make up for that, don't they? Yeah, They're that's just, right. um, yeah, yeah. And I'd have to say, you know, 90% of the police I worked with, or probably more, were just fantastic, 95% were just fantastic Mm. people. Um, So can you tell us about a few times where you thought uh, (laughs) I'm going to get pummeled here or stabbed or something or you felt that your life uh, or someone else's was in danger? Well, there's been a few times. um, You know, fortunately when you're working in the prison, you've got a duress and a radio and you've got, you know, 20 or 30 responding staff within a matter of seconds. So that's one benefit that we have in prison compared to in the community where, you know, response time's not going to be as quick. Um, but for me personally, the, the times I've feared my own safety the most have been dealing with uh, very mentally unwell inmates. Um, they're very unpredictable. Um, you know, most inmates are quite rational to some extent. You know, if, as long as you treat them with respect, they'll treat you with respect. But when it comes to some mentally ill prisoners, um, they can change within a matter of seconds. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. I remember one one particular inmate, um, he used to, you know, he'd be engaging in conversation with you and you'd see his pupils start to dilate and they would just go black, like his eyes would go black. And mm. um, you knew at that point that... Um, he was going to start acting up. And I'll never forget when I first started working in this unit, um, I was working with an experienced prison officer who was from the UK and uh, he was talking about always being on guard. He'd noticed that I'd been putting my head down near the trap and he said, you know, never do that. He says, we're going to give this prisoner some cleaning gear. We're going to give him a mop. And he says, I'll make a bet with you. By the, the time he's finished he would have made that mop into a weapon and he'll try and joust us through the um, the, the trap. And I, I didn't believe him. I just laughed it off. And lo and behold, when we came back after half an hour, um, I he said, you know, look through the little window. There's a window on all the cells. Look through the window. We couldn't see him. He was ducking down. We told him to, to get up, move back. He moved back and then we opened the trap. And as soon as we opened the trap, he's managed to snap the broom uh, or the mop head in, in half like big shard of wood and he tried to joust us and I reckon it missed my waist by about five centimetres. And oh. I remember the prison officer just smiled at me and, you know, said, I told you so, like this is this is what can happen. But he knew, he could see that this guy's behaviour was changing because of, of his, his eyes and the way that he all of a sudden just become bit glazed over. Um, another inmate I dealt with, uh, his name was Frank. Um, he he was uh, in Banksia unit and uh, he'd been up all night. So a lot of the crooks get quite vocal at night. They'll talk through the little, there's like a vent um, underneath the, the cell and they will, you know, talk to one another each night but they also turn on particular inmates and so one particular night um, they turned on Frank and they were abusing him and saying, you know, you should take your life and you're a you know, waste, of, waste of space and all those type of things. And 
it had really worked on him during the night and by uh, let out the next morning, we went to do requests and we, we opened up his his door and he's come at us with a, a razor and try to slash us um, in the face. And so you, you kind of instinct was just to, to kick him and then try and pull ourselves out of that cell. So we kicked him, pulled the pull ourselves out of that cell and slammed the door um, on him and, you know, he'd already kind of lunged at us. So we kind of grabbed his, his arm. It was like stuck in the, the, uh, the cell door. So we were able to push that, that uh, arm back in and we started communicating with him. And every time we went to open the cell door, he would then try and slash us again. Um, and, you know, the, the crooks were just getting louder and louder, probably 30 inmates by this time are yelling at him. And he's just started to escalate. He started cutting himself. And uh, the only way we could get compliance is in, in the end, after cutting himself about 60 times on his arms and his neck, he's mm. gone to his leg and, and, and collected a main artery and he's just, the blood spurts everywhere and he just dropped to the ground. And that was the only time we were able to get compliance from him. Every time we opened the cell, he would try and attack us. And so... You know, that's kind of gives you a little bit of insight into how behaviour can escalate really quickly um, and that irrational thought process. So, you know, often my my friends and my family ask me about prisoners they've seen on the the TV like Tony Mockbell and they ask how how is he like to deal with and, you know, these prisoners are very easy to deal with because they're quite rational. You can speak to them like I'm speaking to you. But the, the psych ones, it doesn't matter what you say, what you do, um, the, you know, the outcome can be you know, unpredictable. So definitely those times I've, I've felt, you know, feared for my life. You know, that um, uh, blends in very well with my next question. So you're talking here about managing psych patients um, and the, the physically uh, trying to manage them. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewellery, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What sort of training did you have to become a police police officer, a prison officer, to deal with those sort of critical incidents? So the, the training for a prison officer is is not very sufficient. It's um, it's an eight-week course and the course is run by the respective prison that you're posted to. Um, so you're really only getting insight into how that facility runs. You're not getting any exposure to other facilities. So um, two of those weeks are practical where you're going out and observing what's happening and then the other six weeks are very much theory-based 
And um, in terms of practical training, you get one day of fire training, uh, two days of tactical options where you're doing wrist locks and restraints on prisoners, and then uh, one day of first aid. So you can count on one hand how many practical days of, of uh, you know, training you get for critical incidents. And considering uh, prisons have the potential to have very large-scale critical incidents, in 2015 there was a significant riot where about 200 inmates were involved in, in the unrest. Uh, you know, staff are completely ill-equipped to deal with large-scale incidents like that. Um, and, you know, you're relying on people who have skills in their personal life, so people that have, you know, come from a military background or people that might have a, you know, a martial arts uh, background or boxing background to effectively deal with the critical incident uh, rather than any training that is ever provided by Corrections Victoria. So I'd say that's one of the biggest criticisms I have of Corrections Victoria is the insufficient training. Um, when you compare it like an organisation with Victoria Police, you know, Victoria Police have a dedicated training academy and their their course is, you know, quite a few months in, in length, uh, whereas, you know, we don't have a dedicated training facility um, when we don't really spend a lot of time in upskilling our staff, even things like... Uh, you have to do your BA breathing apparatus training every 12 months to be compliant. There were people that hadn't done breathing apparatus tra- training in, in 10 years. So there is very little focus on upskilling and maintaining uh, training levels, um, which is unfortunate because when I hear some of the prison officers who came through in the 80s, there was a dedicated training facility. Um, it was in Watsonia. And it was run a bit like an academy. And I think it was a 10-week course and they they went to other prisons. They went to Pentridge and Fairley Prison and different prisons to see how they operate. Um, and, and I think that would have been of great value to, to see how other prisons work um, because the dynamics are different. You know, you surprise me when you're talking there about uh, you've got two weeks of practical and six of uh, theory. Was there any theory about psychology, like how to de-es- let's say not physically to de-escalate a problem, but uh, psychologically how to, uh, like say, calm someone down, what not to say, um, you know, the psychology behind anger and how to deal with all that. Did you have any training about that? Because I would imagine, not I would imagine, that is a big part of calming any incident or any person agitated, um, calming them down. Yeah, absolutely no training was provided in regards to dealing with mentally unwell people, which is it's quite amazing because at the end of the day, if Thomas Embling can't manage individuals uh, because of their violence, they typically come to a place like Barwon to be managed. So you are dealing with people that are psychologically unwell, have experienced psychosis and not knowing what psychosis is and not knowing yeah. uh, how it works. And I, and I was in a pretty fortunate position because I had an understanding of of some of these uh, mental health conditions and, and some of the ways in which you can deal with them. But even as a, uh, a person with a degree, I was ill-equipped um, because there's one thing to talk about these things. It's another one to actually implement it and deal with it when it's in your face. Um, and uh, the only real training that was uh, really given was just to give us insight into different referrals that we could make. So uh, the way to deal with mental health uh, was pretty much to put in a referral to a clinician or to a psychologist that worked at the prison. But, you know, they're they're not operating a 24-hour shift. They are there from Monday to Friday, 9 till 5, and there is a wait list associated with uh, their service. And so, you know, that doesn't help you when it's 1 in the morning and you've got a person on um, OBS 
who's you know wanting to kill themselves and they're they're behaving quite destructively towards themselves, self harming. You know that doesn't help you at that point. So definitely needs to be a heck of a lot more focus on uh, understanding it, being able to identify mental health, and and being able to at least apply that initial, I suppose you call it first aid to yeah. people who are yep. acutely unwell. Mm. You know, you can, I've thought about this often, but you can learn a lot in theory, obviously, but putting it into practice is a completely different, uh, it, it's completely different. And I often think you can learn about, let's say, managing a psych patient that's, you know, gone, um, that's gone off. But what you can't learn is um, you uh, is about anxiety and the stress involved in a situation. You can never learn that, and P- I, I find people don't really. Uh, you can't teach someone how to manage. Well, I suppose you can to a point their stress, but everyone's stresses are different. Everyone's level of anxiety is different. It's very hard to put put uh, to teach somebody that, isn't it? No, oh, 100%. You need a lived experience to really be able to deal with it appropriately. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, the prisons are in a unique position because they have the capacity to provide people with experience, but they need to be doing that under, I suppose, some direction. So rather than just putting – I remember the first night I was in Banksia, we had two people on OBS that were suicidal and I was the only staff member that was used to be one up in Banksia unit. And so, oh, you know, you, every 15 minutes you have to go and check on the prisoner, make sure they haven't self-harmed, what their well-being is. I was given no instruction whatsoever and, you know, here you are, trying to talk to these people or get a response out of them or trying to talk them out of destructive behaviour. So you need that lived experience, but, you know, it needs to be with support. You can't just be left on your own devices. That is, that is so unbelievably inadequate, uh, eight weeks, when, as you say, you are dealing with very, very unpredictable people, even um, those just not a, a psych patient, like just a, a prisoner. You know, like I would imagine there'd be a lot of anger, a lot of testosterone, uh, you know, a lot of anxiety, like to try and manage that It and to be one up, oh, that mm. just does my head in. Yeah, <laughs> it was completely insufficient. I mean, it changes, but... Unfortunately, something has to happen for it to change. So, you know, we, we've had some incidents where people have been successful in committing suicide in prison or there have been incidents that have led to a review um, and then all of a sudden, you know, we, we recognise that there was insufficiencies and we make some changes. Mm. You can you take us through, you're talking uh, a little bit about, say, Barwon and uh, Banksia. Can you tell us about the prisons that you worked at and the differences between them? Yeah, sure. So um, I started at Barwon. So Barwon's a high security facility for sentenced inmates. So it typically deals with the way the system's supposed to work is you you do a third of your sentence in high, a third in medium and a third in low. Um, so that you transition out into the community. So Barwon provides usually that uh, inmates that are in the first third of their sentence or inmates that can't be transitioned because of their classification. So if they've got an escape history, um, they'll be an A asterisk prisoner so they won't be able to move down into a lower security facility. And prisoners that are high profile or prisoners that are a threat to uh, other inmates. Barwon's unique in the sense that it's got these units called management units. So if a prisoner is non-compliant in the system, we can put them in isolation, remove privilege, and then incentivize good behaviour. So if they behave well, they'll get back their TV, they'll get back, um, you know, visits, they'll get back more phone calls. So it, it works as a, a management tool 
Um, as you transition, you'll go to a lower security facility. The infrastructure looks a little bit different, more out of cell hours, and then you will also be engaged in uh, work that allows you to move around a little bit more. So they're working in industries. Um, and then the low security facilities are like a, a camp effectively. They're, they have like Donga accommodation. They're on, you know, a thousand acre properties and prisoners will be driving tractors and they're somewhat involved in, you know, maintenance of community places like cemeteries and, you know, local parks um, and lawn bowls clubs um, so for me personally, I started at Barwon and then I was there for about six years and then went to the CVIU, um, the intelligence unit. And I, I got to work at all the prisons. So the way we worked was that we would go wherever the intelligence was telling us to go. So if there was a drug issue at Port Phillip, we'd go to Port Phillip. If there was a drug issue at Loddon, we'd go to Loddon. So I got to experience all of the prisons in Victoria to some capacity, um, others more than um, others. Typically Port Phillip and, and MRC were the prisons that I would most frequently go to simply because of the, the drug problems and the, um, the unrest problems at those locations. Um, I did a six-month secondment at Loddon, which is a medium security facility for sentenced inmates uh, up in Castlemaine and I did a brief stint at Malmesbury Youth Justice Centre as I started to set up their intelligence unit there when they were initially taken over by Corrections Victoria and um, that's that's about it. So, yeah, I've moved around quite a bit um, and, yeah, as I said, that working in Intel, I got to work in, in all of the major prisons, including the private prisons. Uh, did you work at Port Phillip at all? Yes. So Port Phillip was one of the, the private prisons that we would frequently attend. So um, we uh, would have to search, especially high security prisoners. So there's um, after the Carl Williams incident, there were a series of findings on uh, the management of high security inmates. So there's, um, you know, prisoners that are deemed to be high profile or high security prisoners that we get allocated. So we would have um, a certain quota on how many cells we would search. So we would be targeting typically people on that list. So Port Phillip is also a little bit like Barwon in the sense that it's a high security facility for sentenced men. It also works as the, the prison hospital. So uh, I did go out there quite a few times to do searches, um, speak with staff. Um, sometimes we would be reviewing, um, you know, their security processes if they'd identified an issue. Um, yeah, I, I was there quite quite regularly. Mm. Uh, you mentioned then that you had done some uh, some time <laughs> at uh, at Malmesbury. Yeah. Uh, obviously that's closed down. We'll go into that in a minute. But what are your thoughts on how to manage young people in prison and should they be in prison? Look, it's a, it's a really challenging one. So, um, you know, the, the youth are managed under different legislation than the adults. So I think one of the issues that we have in terms of, of managing inmates is that youth prisoners can't be separated for extended periods of time. So there's the Children's Youth and Family Act that regulates how we must treat prisoners or youth clients, they call them, in inside. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, there's the Charter of Human Rights that also has some uh, points about managing people under the age of, under the age of 18 in custody. And mm-hmm. so... Uh, uh, when it comes to misbehaviour, uh, we can't use the same tools that we can in the adult facilities. So you can't incentivise good behaviour and you really can't keep the young people accountable. So those youth justice facilities uh, are pretty unruly um, and the, the kids really do what they want in those places and subsequently there's a high level of assaults 
um, at those facilities. Um, when I first started there, it come on the back of two critical incidents that had occurred. So one at Malmesbury, one at Parkville. So the one at Parkville was a, effectively a riot and the one at Malmesbury was a, a mass breakout where I think it was six or seven in, uh, of the, the youth got out and hijacked some vehicles and went on a crime spree. So it was at that point deemed that the Department of Human Services, who I believe was the the um, the manager of youth justice at the time, they were insufficient in dealing with uh, critical incidents. So it was deemed that Corrections Victoria would be more suitable um, because we have uh, response groups. So the response group was stationed out of those youth justice facilities and then uh, myself and a few other colleagues went over and then set up an intelligence unit because they weren't doing in any proactive intelligence. They weren't using an intel- intelligence as a tool to manage inmates. Um, so that was a, a first. Um, and to be honest with you, I was, I was shocked. You know, I, coming from Barwon where you might have an assault a week, maybe a critical incident a month, to four or five assaults a day um, at at Malmesbury and there would be uh, like a critical incident every single week um, and some of the most violent things you can imagine, you know, staff being uh, airlifted out to hospital, um, it was horrific. And I think what's happened is that um, over, over time I, I was fortunate enough to speak to some of the officers that have worked in youth justice space for a while and they said, you know, back 30 years ago it was a little bit more like a camp, like they would take the inmates out um, sailing, they'd take them out um, to camping. It was a little bit different focus but over the years because things happen, the government must respond to those those things and I think what we have now is you know, to mitigate risk, we're, we're treating them like they're in prison. And I think if any person walked into a youth justice facility and then walked into an adult facility, in terms of looking at the infrastructure, there's not a heck of a lot in, in difference. Um, so I think we're trying to manage the youth in a prison, um, but in prisons we get to use certain tools. In, in youth justice facilities we don't have those tools. So I think that's why there's such a big problem in our youth justice facilities. It it sounds to me like the youth that are in there, um, they know they've almost got free reign and uh, they know that if they uh, get into trouble that there's really not a lot of consequences to them um, getting into trouble or causing trouble is there because of, as you said, the and I don't have an issue with um, their human rights, of course, but when you say that you can't really, um, uh, what's the word? Um, uh, I can't think of the word. Uh, but the, the bottom line is that you can't do much with them. Yeah. Can you? No, well, you can't. You you, you do have certain things which you can do, but even things like placement becomes an issue because you've only got the two youth justice facilities. Um, and so if you do identify that there are some youth that are not getting along or creating a problem, you have very limited capacity to manage them separately. Um, you know, all of the, the youth mix with one another. At Malmesbury there was a secure side and an unsecure side. Other than, you know, choosing which side they're on, that's really all you could do. And that's why you'd see the same kids getting in fights. They'd have a fight, have mediation with staff. Two hours later, the same kids would be fighting again. Um, so unfortunately, there are very few, very few tools. Um, and it's unfortunate when we talk about whether incarceration works for youth, I think it's very evident that there is a problem with youth crime and, and it has increased um, in the last 15 to 20 years, I, I would say. But, um, you know, whether this is the most effective way of dealing with I think it might be the most risk-adverse way, but uh, in terms of actually making a difference, I think it's it's not really having a function. In fact, I'd say there's a lot of youth out there that quite like 
the concept of prison. Uh, and the reason why is because I think when you've had a troubled upbringing, um, ultimately you uh, start to set, you know, your, your goals within what you know. So if you are starting to mix around people that are dealing drugs, you want to become a drug dealer and you want to become the best drug dealer. So I think a lot of these kids are mixing with the wrong circles. They see people around them coming in and out of prison. It's part of the lifestyle. It contributes to them becoming more notorious or respected in their little circles. And uh, in some ways I think they 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 like that. I, I know of many prisoners that have gone from youth justice to, to Barwon and have been incarcerated at uh, like a place like Acacia and they're – they're excited that they're at a place that's notorious, like the, that's a place where Carl Williams was killed. So I've had many a young inmates say that, like, oh, this is the place that Carl Williams was killed. Where was Carl Williams killed? And that, they're fascinated by that. They're, that's part of, I suppose, the lifestyle mm. that they've embraced. Mm. You see, from I think uh, there wouldn't be too many that would argue that kids aren't born like that and Adults are responsible for, I believe, for the way uh, uh, children see the world and their experience in the world when they're young. And I think we've got, um, we, well, I don't know, I suppose we should be ashamed in a way that these kids actually like um, jail. It's probably a better life than many of them have experienced outside. And they feel part of, um, I, I don't know, part of something. Um, we all want to um, be involved in something and be um, admired or respected, whatever it be. And unfortunately, that's the only way these kids can find that respect, that what they believe is respect. And I think that's a, a sad indictment on society. Yeah, that's right. The adults, we are to blame for these kids and how they um, how they end up in jail. A hundred percent. And there's like over the years, I've tried to understand why people come inside, and um, you know, there are definitely people that have come in um, because of um, you know, you know, they might be educated or they might. Um, uh, have come from uh, you know a good background, but a vast majority of of people that come in have experienced homelessness, have experienced drug and alcohol abuse, have experienced uh, a lower level of education than the national standard. Uh, those those mitigating factors are, are present in about ninety five percent of of inmates. A lot of them don't even know how to write or read, um, and they're having to do some basic. English courses while they're inside um, and, you know, when you kind of listen to these guys' stories, you realise that it's the environment that has led them to that that place, not necessarily because they're a bad person. Oh, absolutely. I think it is. Um, it is the environment as to why they're there. As I said before, they're not born like that. Somebody has has to take responsibility, and it's generally well, of course, the parents. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I don't know what I don't know what you do. Like, why aren't the kids going on those training, uh, like those programs anymore? They've got to have some sort of interest. That's why I imagine they just get so frustrated inside. They get bored. Mm. Would, is that is that why they riot? Do you think? Look, I, I think a lot of it's yeah boredom, um, and also when you put a heap of kids together, you get groupthink, and it's not necessarily constructive. And they are immature, and they do come up with you know crazy ideas, um, and unfortunately, they they can become quite destructive. Funny enough, you know, I know it's been controversial in, in the years gone by when youth have been managed in adult facilities, but when these uh, younger people come into adult custody, I find that a lot of the older prisoners who kind of recognise that 
you know, these kids are them 20 or 30 years ago, they actually act as quite a, a role model and they settle these these kids down. They don't continue to be as disruptive as they have been in youth when they go to adults. And I think it's because they do find that, you know, fatherly figure or that that mentor inside. So, you know, I'm, I'm a big ambassador for having more, I suppose, experienced prisoners in the system, trusted prisoners, of course, that kind of balance out the, the atmosphere of the, the units. You know, when you've got 100 kids, it's like a classroom. If you have five or ten kids and one or two adults, you know, it's, it's manageable. If you have 80 kids with one teacher, it becomes chaotic. And I think that's what you have in, in youth now. You have, you know, one adult, lots of kids and disruption, whereas if you increase the amount of uh, adults in that area and you change the environment, you might be able to have a fl- like an effect on their behaviour. Mm. We had an interesting discussion about this the other day, didn't we? And you talked about, um, and I thought it made a lot of sense, because because children don't have the maturity to know when to stop or how to stop, um, they can sometimes cause some um, very, oh, really extreme injuries to prison officers. I thought that was a, a fascinating insight. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, when you some of these kids, you know, they're to be um, classed as a, a youth or a young person within the court system, you can be up to, I think it's 22 years of age. So you're not always getting people under the age of 18. So some of these individuals are quite large, you know, they're six foot, six foot two, um, you know, they're 100 kilos, they're big boys and they can fight just as, as good as an adult. In fact, they're probably more mobile and, and fitter than a lot of adults. So um, in, in terms of their capacity to be violent, uh, I would say that they um, are probably the, some of the most dangerous um, inmates in, in our system because of their capabilities. Kids, a lot of these kids, as we say, we talk about um, their upbringing and their lack of respect for authority. It doesn't matter what you say to these kids, it's very difficult to de-escalate the situation. And I've even seen this in the adult system where you get some of the younger 20-year-olds, 21-year-olds coming through. To try and get through to them is is very challenging. They don't think rationally. You know, they, mm. they, they see a shiny ball and they go after it and they don't think about the consequence. Whereas some of the older guys have been around the bush a few times and they, they think a little bit more. Um, they're a little bit real reasonable and there's something to negotiate there. Whereas a lot of these kids, there's just nothing. Mm-hmm. I suppose it's the maturity, isn't it? As you get older, you realise uh, the strength. Because I, I imagine a lot of those kids don't really understand their own strength and they don't think about the consequences, whereas an adult prisoner, I imagine they do. You learn that if I belt somebody senseless, I'll, um, you know, I'll obviously, um, I'll get into trouble, <laughs> trouble sounds like a school term, <laughs> but, you know, they can suffer the consequences. But as a kid, you don't think like that, do you? No, that's 100%, Yeah. So there's a fair bit to digest in that discussion with Giles, isn't there? Like, what a fascinating, intelligent, articulate young man. Uh, Next week, we have some more thought-provoking discussions about his experience of case managing some of our most dangerous and delusional prisoners here in Victoria. I wonder if you can guess who he describes as, quote, the walking corpse, unquote. Uh, The prisoner whose personal hygiene is non-existent and he doesn't care about it either. Uh, And the prisoner who basically runs the show out there. (laughs) And our discussion about transgender prisoners was fascinating and it brought up situations that I'd never ever considered that a prison would have to think about, let alone make a decision on. Anyway, have a great week and we'll talk next week. See you later.
As you've probably noticed, we've moved to a new platform called ACAST. I think that's the right expression, I've got no idea. And my previous reviews haven't transferred over. I need reviews. <laughs> Could you do me a favour and put up a review? And thank you so much for your support and patronage. With your help, I can give you that little bit extra. Thanks. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.